We want to thank you for tuning in to the Indian Run Christian Church podcast with Pastor Terry Bailey. This podcast can be found on iTunes by searching for Terry Bailey Ministries. Right now, let's get to Pastor Terry's insightful message. This is the fourth installment in this little series on the life and ministry of Elisha. If you have enjoyed this series then the bad news is that there'll only be one more after this. If you've hated this series, the good news is there'll only be one more after this. And uh, then, then we'll have finished that. But I wanted to do the life and ministry of Elisha again because I think it's a neglected portion of Scripture. It often strikes us as weird. It sometimes strikes us as barbaric and offensive. And it's a little hard to understand for us sometimes. I tried to start with what I thought were the most problematic ones, the bears and the boys of Bethel and the raising of the sunken axe head from the waters of the Jordan River and then moved to the provision of water in the wilderness for the sake of King Jehoshaphat and the lessons that he needed to learn. And in each of these cases, Lessons were learned. It's not the man of God. It's the God of the man that brings the power to bear. If the man of God will throw himself into the environment where the lost are lost, they will be raised up and found. And if the shepherd will walk with God, the flock will be blessed. There's a lesson in this one too, the widow's oil. The story seems less strange to us. We move into something a little more mainstream seeming now in the life of Elisha. But there are important lessons to be learned. Let me start with this. The man who died setting this into motion was probably Obadiah. We don't know this for sure because the text doesn't say it, but he fits the context. He's at the right time. His death would fit in here. The circumstances would fit in here. And ancient commentators from the rabbis closest to this time all the way up to Josephus at the time of Christ and a little after all agree internally that it is Obadiah. It is probably Obadiah who died. Now, now one kind of technical question is this Obadiah, who we find in First Kings, the same as the Obadiah who wrote the smallest book of the Old Testament called Obadiah? Uh, same guy? Answer is, we don't know for sure. Um, the book of Obadiah is tiny and it provides almost nothing in context that helps us set the date uh, it is about bad blood between the Israelites and the Edomites, and that covers a lot of historical territory. Uh, traditionally, majority scholarship says that the two Obadiahs are different, the prophet and the Obadiah of First Kings. But there is now a growing minority of scholarship who reverses that idea, and says, nope, same guy, the guy who wrote the book of Obadiah and the Obadiah of First Kings. I throw that in for free, uh, to whatever extent you're interested. But if this is the Obadiah of First Kings, understand who he was. He was a steward for the house of King Ahab. 
And he spent his personal fortune and risked his neck putting his life on the line to do a thing, to hide, feed, and protect the prophets of God at a time when Ahab and Jezebel wanted them exterminated and were working hard to get that project done. And Obadiah sheltered and provided for and kept safe some hundreds of the prophets of God. And you could understand how that could eat up a person's resources and even cause him for such an important project to borrow money to save prophets of God. I think that is probably who we're talking about. I think that is probably the debt that we're talking about. But even if not, the widow, when she speaks to Elisha, says, you know that my husband, your servant, feared the Lord, revered the Lord. He loved the Lord. He was a godly man. So even if it is not Obadiah, as I think it probably is, we can take a pretty good stab that he being known as a godly man, this debt that he left behind him was not the result of gambling and liquor and womanizing. I'm going to say that it wasn't that kind of debt at all, that whatever the reasons for which he borrowed the debt, him being a godly man, they were godly reasons. Nevertheless, the man has died and the debt remains. And his widow has, as she sees it, no means to repay the debt. And we don't know exactly how big the debt was, but it was substantial because both her sons are about to be sold into slavery to clear the amount. So it was a large enough debt to require the price of two human beings being sold into slavery to settle it. I want to say a word about the slavery in another context we might understand it to have not really been chattel slavery, as you and I would describe that in our own American past, but the Jubilee system where when a person fell on hard times and approached what we would call bankruptcy, they were able to indenture themselves or their children to somebody else until the next Jubilee year came up. So it might only be a year or two years, but no more than seven years until the next Jubilee came up. And you would work for that person until that time and the debt was cleared. And while you worked for that person, you earned at least a small basic salary so the two boys would have been able to provide some modest support for their mother during the time. That would be the system that God set in place, which frequently gets called slavery, but it isn't what you and I think of when we say the word slavery. But this is the northern kingdom of Israel, not the southern kingdom of Judah. And when they split, the northern kingdom was by far the less godly and remained throughout the history of the two kingdoms, the less godly of the two kingdoms, and that's why they were destroyed 
first because they were so much more ungodly. And this is during the reign of the house of Ahab about the ungodliest period of the less godly of the two kingdoms of the split kingdoms. And I would bet if I were a betting man that we're not talking about the Jubilee system here, I'd say these boys are about to be sold into actual chattel slavery, that they will be hauled away and owned like animals, and nothing that they do will send any blessing back to their mother. That, I believe, is probably the situation that we are looking at. And granted, in the big scheme of things, the big scheme of things, this is what you would call a small catastrophe affecting only one family. But for that family, it's a big catastrophe. The husband's gone. And the debt is overwhelming. And the boys are about to be sold like livestock. And the woman is going to be left alone. And without support. And for them, this is a huge catastrophe. So the woman goes to Elisha as the leader of the prophets of God. Says, my husband died. You know he was a godly man. My boys are just about to be sold into slavery to settle the debt that he left behind. And Elisha, the man of God for the hour, there are 10,000 hungry people here waiting for us to do something about it. What should we do? Well, what do you got? Oh, a couple of loaves of bread, a few teeny little fish. We'll work with that. Are you kidding? No, we'll work with that. We're facing a wedding party here that is ongoing, perhaps for some more days, and we have run out of wine. What do we... What do you got? Empty jars. Water. I don't see how that... We'll work with that. You know, once upon a time, Moses was, as we would consider these things, pretty well set up to deal with the problem of the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt. He was a prince of Egypt. He had resources. He had wealth. He had power, authority, clout. He was pretty well set up, as we would see it, to deal with the problem of the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt. But that is not the moment at which God called Moses. No, that moment came after 40 years when Moses' youth was all spent and gone. And when his wealth had evaporated, and when such clout and authority as he had wielded had been stripped for him, and he was a runaway refugee criminal in the eyes of Egypt, and when God 
called Moses, essentially what Moses had at his disposal was a stick. What have you got? And yet God so empowered this man with a stick as to bring the mightiest nation on the earth of that day to its knees and force that nation to do what its rulers swore they would not do. Let my people go. Now let's pause here to take a quick poll. If God can so empower a man with a stick as to bring Egypt to its knees and force their hand, how many of you think that God can settle the comparatively small debt of a comparatively teeny family unit with such resources as they may have at their disposal? How many of you believe God can do that? So, the question to the widow is, what do you got? Well, a little oil, that's it. Nothing else in the house, just this. A little oil. For what it's worth, if it was full, and I think that it was probably not by her description of it as a little, but for what it's worth... The jars of oil that they had, you and I would call a big jar. It was called an amphora, and it held roughly seven gallons. So let's assume the best that it was full, seven gallons of olive oil. Now, almost all of my sermons involve one research project, When I did the iron axe head, I researched the relationship of the Bible to the Iron Age and blacksmithing and all that to come to a truth about why they were so upset about the loss of a puny little axe head. And I come out understanding that better. What I researched for this was the price of olive oil in the ancient world. And there are records, old invoices, carved with a stylus into clay tablets, mostly from larger outfits, palaces and militaries and such. But we bought yay much olive oil from these people and we paid a certain amount of stuff, money or trade, whatever it was for it. And there was a way of establishing the value and it all comes out consistently with this as almost everything did in that economy of that time, everything was based on the idea of a day's wage. A working man should make enough in a day to support he and his family for a day. And you have one coin that is the basis of that. You work one day, you get one coin. It's a denarii, it's a drachma, it's a shekel, depending on the time and place. But you work one day, you get one coin. And that one coin will take care of your family's needs for one day. You want to take care of them tomorrow, you've got to get up and go to work tomorrow. And if you wanted to get ahead of that one day's pay for one day's work, one family's needs schedule, you couldn't be a day laborer. 
You had to do something a little bigger or grander. Or you had to be a day laborer and keep a few goats. Mend a few tents. Something else. In your evening hours, when you got done with your day job, if you wanted to get ahead of just the basic needs. This was the way the economy was set up, and it was partly mercy. A man should be able to stay alive and keep his family alive. So prices are set according to a day's wage. And it was partly shrewdness. If we get people into a situation where they just can't live, we quit making money. So it was all geared around a day's Wage. Now that said, this amphora, this jar, this seven-gallon jar, if it was full of olive oil, was calculated to cost one day's wage. It would last for many days. It was part of what you were going to be factoring in for a couple of months while you used up seven gallons of oil. How many of you keep seven gallons of cooking oil in your house? Just curious. It would be a lot for us. It was not so much for them. What was I talking about? Okay. okay. Day's wage for a seven-gallon jar of olive oil that would last you many days. The most recent figures that I could find say that the average income, individual income in the United States is $31,200. Some of us are making more than that, but that's the average for all over the United States. So I divided that down. That makes a day's wage for our average context $85 which is to say as near as you and I can understand it, that seven gallons of olive oil would have been worth about $85, us, to them. Divide that down, it comes out to about $12.14 a gallon. Divide that down, it comes out to about $3 a quart. Divide that down, it comes out, it's with change, somewhere between one, two bucks for a pint of olive oil. So I looked yesterday, walmart.com. And on walmart.com, I looked at the great value olive oil because I figured this woman didn't have the expensive stuff. And there were grades even then. They didn't call it virgin, extra virgin. They called it first press, second press, and then the cheap, really cheap stuff. So I'm going to figure she had the cheap stuff. So I checked yesterday, walmart.com. Great value for 17 ounces, so a little extra. Two bucks and change. So it all comes down to this. What olive oil is worth to you today is almost exactly the same as it was worth to her then. And at most, in our equivalent way of thinking, she had $85 to address a debt that was going to end in both her sons being sold into slavery. It's not enough. 
question was, what do you have? And this was the answer. So there's a second question that God frequently asks. What are you willing to do? Are you willing to take what you know was water poured into these jars that you know were empty and serve them to the wedding party? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to take one little box lunch and approach 10,000 hungry people and start passing it out and see what happens? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to dunk seven times in the Jordan River? Another story from the life of Elisha. Are you willing to pick up your stick and stand in front of the king of Egypt and make demands in the name of God? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to go out and bug all your neighbors for empty amphora? Well, now, you, you, you would think so. I think so. Josh, Katie, if your children were going to be sold into slavery otherwise, would you go out and bug all your neighbors for empty jars if that was promised to you to offer some kind of solution? I think I would. What do you think? Dan, Mindy, they're sitting right beside you. They're about to be sold into slavery. Are you willing to go out and irritate the neighbors over empty jars? Josie's saying, yes. <laughs> no. I, I think any of us would. It seems like a small enough thing. Go out and get empty jars from your neighbors. Not a few. And bring them back. And it was this interesting thing. When you're satisfied with the number and there wasn't a limitation put on it, you can bug as many neighbors as you want. You can take such time as you want. But when you got enough jars that you think you're satisfied, you and your sons go in the house with them and close the doors behind you. And that's it. Once the doors are closed... This part of the operation is over. And we move forward. So it's what satisfies you, but go out and get those empty jars. Not a few. And then close the doors. And the doors were closed. And now it begins. You pick up that amphora which had all you have and you start pouring it into the first empty jar and when it fills up the first empty jar you move to the second well you know the manufacturer was not precise I said roughly seven gallons some could be a little bigger than others maybe yours was full right to the cap so yeah you fill up the first one there might be some to start a second one but when you fill that second jar and start the third you have moved into new territory and you keep filling. And you keep filling. 
And it doesn't say how many jars she had, but she went out and she got whatever amount of jars she got. And when she got to the end, I think she was somewhat excited by this point. Another jar! Give me another jar! There aren't any more jars, Ma! That was it. Then the oil stopped flowing. And there was only one empty jar in the house. Now, I have what is a fairly wild hair idea, and I can't prove it. But as I said, just like now, there was first press, there was second press, and then there was the cheap stuff. I imagine what she had was the cheap stuff. That's what I imagine. But when I looked on uh, walmart.com yesterday, yes, you could get the great value olive oil, 17 ounces for $2 and change. Or you could spend 15 or $16 on an ounce less for better olive oil. At least they say it's better, I don't know. But I have a notion that even if she started with the cheap stuff, that when she got done, her jars were full of the good stuff. That's just a notion. But you know that the wine at the wedding feast that came from the water was better than the wine that they paid money for? I just have this notion. But let's set it aside for a moment and say that she ended up with the $85 for 7-gallon standard Stock. If she gathered 10 jars, she would have what you would call $850. If she gathered 20 jars, she would have what you would call $1,700. If she gathered 40 jars, she would have what you would call $3,400. If she gathered 50 jars, she would have what you would call $4,250. I don't know how many jars she gathered. She lived in Gilgal, which was a big populous area and was attached to Jericho, which was a bigger populous area. She could have got thousands of jars, I suppose. I don't know how many jars she had. But I know that at the end of the process, she had enough money to pay the debt and something left over for she and her boys to live on, at least for a time. There are lessons here. Let me give you the first one. God does not leave the righteous without help. Amen? But when the righteous are in a jam, he may ask you a couple of questions. What do you got? And what are you willing to do? Because these are very characteristic questions of God's. Because faith matters to Him. And it may be that nobody here is in a particularly tight personal jam today. Maybe you're not immediately facing bankruptcy, but I've known people in this community who have faced bankruptcy. 
Maybe you're not right this minute facing some huge medical catastrophe, but we have all known people who have and are. Maybe you're not in a big jam right now, but I bet you have been. And I suspect some of us will be. And God does not leave the righteous without help. But he may ask you a couple of questions. And even if it's not just a personal jam that you're in, we'll move beyond that context. How many of you have something big in the culture of the world that concerns you? Something that concerns you out there in this world? But what do you got? What are you willing to do? These questions still count. You know, I thought, I thought about, and I actually began to do the research to, to provide you with details, operations like Operation Evangelize and World Vision. How did those start? You'd be surprised. These things don't generally start with someone who has an extra hundred million dollars laying around. They start with someone who had a big concern, a calling from God, and they just took the little money or time, energy, resource that they had. And God made something big out of it. Thought about dealing with that in detail and decided that for us today I would just just look at the kind of I'm sure by comparison small potatoes projects that we do in this Congregation last year, the scrap ministry raised a little over fourteen thousand dollars now i i 'm still in a place in my life where that sounds like real money fourteen thousand dollars and I know what that scrap that about sixty tons of scrap that we took in I know what it consisted of. I handled most of it at least once and i can 't tell you how many of those tons except that it was multiple tons of it. Or soup cans and peach cans and green bean cans and bent nails and old screws and multiple tons of it were just that. And then I'll ask you a question. Did I have your cans? Or did you throw them away? Just asking. You know, it's not even a big thing. You put them in a bag, you bring them here. Most people just, when they go through the hallway, open the back door, set them out there on the concrete, or if you feel more energetic, toss them on the trailer, but I'll get it from there. Whatever. Did I have yours? Seems to me that God already turned that ministry into something fair-sized. But what if we all contributed little bit that we have. I collected walnuts last year. I will be collecting walnuts this fall. People have asked me, are you just talking about like the ones off trees? And I'm, yes. <laughs> those, those walnuts. Uh, we had over $900 worth. If I'd had about three more feed sacks full of walnuts, it would have been 1000 Dollars even. I want to raise at least a thousand dollars this fall. I don't know. Did I get your walnuts last year? Did I? 
your neighbor have a tree? Did you ask him for it? Jim and I both discovered one truth. Most people were incredibly anxious and thankful if we would come and get the walnuts out of their yard. They call them lawnmower cannonballs, and they're happy to see them go. Uh, I'm just saying it was a small thing, and yet nearly $1,000 went to feed the hungry in this community. Did you have a half hour and a neighbor with a walnut tree? Just little things. But God can take your pittance and your small act of obedience and he can transform it into something big. And it can start right here with our little project in this congregation but it can move way beyond that faith promise Sunday will be here soon and, and we'll ask everybody to consider their pledges last year was was a great faith promise year the largest amount of pledges that we have ever had I think at least the largest amount of pledges that we've had in my time here and we are on track Andrew will soon be presenting all that math and reports but I think we're on track to meeting it and to, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying, think about your pledge and maybe what you have isn't much and maybe you think your little pledge can't possibly matter. But I'm telling you, when you put what little you have in the hands of God, he will make something big of it. A couple of pairs of used eyeglasses. Who knew those things could be such a blessing? But we know now, don't we, Bill? Small obedience. Pittances. I stand here as the man of God for this hour, as Elisha was the man of God for that hour, and I say to you, take the little that you have and put it in the hands of God, even just something you was going to throw away otherwise, and see what he doesn't do with it. And then imagine, then just try to imagine what he would do if we would all give him our whole self. Just put our lives in his hands. We want to take a moment to thank all of you, our faithful listeners, for setting aside time each week for the Indian Run Christian Church podcast. You can find out more about the church by visiting our website at www.christforeastcanton.com That's www.christforeastcanton, all one word, dot com On behalf of Pastor Terry and all the folks at Indian Run Christian Church, I pray God's blessing on you and your family.